This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com forward slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's MyFlexLearning.com forward slash B-E. Welcome back. You're listening once again to the Authority Podcast on the B Podcast Network. I'm Ross Romano, and my guest today is Chris Hall. Chris is an eighth grade language arts teacher at Oyster River Middle School in Durham, New Hampshire. He's also served in the past as a Heinemann Fellow, researching innovative writing practices within a cohort of dynamic educators from across the country. And I'm glad to have Chris here to talk about his book published by Heinemann, which is called The Writer's Mindset, Six Stances That Promote Authentic Revision. And we're pleased to say that Chris was recommended by Mike Anderson, who was on an earlier episode of the podcast. So this is your reminder. If you haven't heard that one yet, go back and listen to Mike as well after this. But Chris, welcome in. Thanks a lot, Ross. Glad to be here. So the one thing that stands out when reading through this book is that it really is very much focused on revision, right? We have heard listeners heard the subtitle here, Six Stances That Promote Authentic Revision. And that's pretty clearly addressed up front. That is an area that you really thought deeply about and zeroed in on. What made you choose that focus? Well, I think for probably just about every language arts teacher I know, um, revision is one of those areas that students really struggle with. You mentioned that I was part of the Heinemann Fellows or Heinemann Fellowship, and we did an action research project. And when we were digging into problems of practice, I thought, what's what's really a challenge for my middle school writers? And I taught a lot of grades from five through five through 10th grade. And no matter what, I had students that would finish a piece or any draft and just say, I like it the way it is. Mm-hmm. And the kind of phrase became the genesis for my action research, my teacher research project, but really the whole book, because I know what that phrase means. And teachers that all teachers I know that teach writing here, I like it the way it is, or they see the end scrawled at the end of a piece. And what it means is, you know, this work site's closed. There is no revision happening, period. This piece isn't changing. Thank you very much. And what I noticed is, and I've heard a lot of teachers speaking about how this happens across the spectrum of writers. Like, it's not surprising that it happens to some of our students who come in feeling less confident about writing or struggling with some basic skills, but it actually that kind of fixed mindset happened with my students who really came in with a lot of writing confidence and skill, but it was the idea of 
looking again at their piece. And it was, what I discovered is really, it was about their mindset that they brought. And I think teachers, all language arts teachers realize the value of revision, how incredibly important it is. And I mean, it's, it goes well beyond language arts. I mean, we're kind of always trying to revise ourselves and keep a growth mindset. And it's huge. And both the importance of revision and the fact that it's really tough. And it's not even tough just for kids. Like, what I realized through doing my research and really just kid watching in my classroom was like, of course it's hard. Like it's hard for all of us. I took an honest look at my own teaching and my own writing, excuse me, and realized why wouldn't it be hard? Like there are so many reasons revision is hard that are legitimate that we sometimes as teachers forget. What did you learn was at the root of the resistance to revision? I'm sure it falls at a various different points along a spectrum, but what are some of the reasons you kind of uncovered as you thought more deeply about this. Of course, you've been teaching writing for a while, but when you were really digging into revision and thinking, okay, how do I get students to embrace this as much as I want them to, what was causing their resistance? One of the best things I did was just interview my students. I talked to them and one of the best things I did too was just share with them, let them in on the fact that we were doing research about this. So it gave, they were really I think really honest and also thought deeply about why is this so hard? And none of it was really that surprising, but for one thing, revision takes a lot of extra work. We're asking kids to take significant time and effort. And they had some, some things to say about that. That was probably one of the biggest ones. There's no guarantees. It's not like there's no formula for revision. It's not a simple path or an easy way to go from point A to point Z. And there's a lot of gray area in, in how you should or could change a piece. So that's a challenge for a lot of kids who want sort of, you know, I remember teaching math and I loved math in some ways because there was often a few solutions, but it was like you were, it was clear when you were done. And it's not always clear with revision, with writing. Another thing kids talked about a lot was the fact that feedback can feel like a threat. And I've seen that adults feel that way too, right? We sometimes think it's frustrating when someone doesn't get something we think is clear, a passage we just love that we wrote. And we're thinking, how could you not get that? And uh, we can just feel vulnerable when we're asked to do some of the things that teachers are asking, whether it's cutting a section that we feel attached to or altering something. And then lastly, what kids talked about, and it was hard to hear, but it was really true, is they said, sometimes when teachers ask us to revise, they're really asking us to, well, they didn't use this word, but they're asking us to just be compliant. And I had to, we're asking, sometimes revision becomes like an exercise in submission and not in creativity. Kids sometimes lose ownership of their writing. And so I think any writer, any of us feel some of those things, but it was really powerful and eye-opening to hear my students share those over interviews over a couple of years. Are there certain things about the scheduling constraints of schooling um, and perhaps their incompatibility with certain ways in which writing would traditionally be conducted? I believe Um, For example, in Stephen King's book on writing, when he writes about the need to kill your darlings, right, to cut out those things that you might feel attached to, but you later realize aren't really serving the story. I think if I recall correctly, he writes that after he writes the first draft, he sets it aside for three months or something before he goes back to it, right? The school year doesn't exactly allow for that. Um, But that's kind of part of that process of saying, okay, with some distance, we have some objectivity and we say, I really like this when I wrote it, but now I'm looking at it and realizing it doesn't exactly fit here. Or also, I think, of course, as students become more and more experienced, they write more, they realize they do have a lot to say. 
part of that resistance may go away as well, because when you're a little more novice or you're not totally confident in your ability to keep generating new ideas, you're like, I don't want to cut this because it's really good and I won't come up with something else as good again, right? And the more you do it, the more you realize, um, oh, actually, I yeah, I can, that, that might fit a different story or I may come up with something even better. That, that's first of all, I just reread uh, Stephen King's um, on writing. It's terrific. And I remember that passage you're talking about killing our darlings. And you mentioned a few things that are obstacles in school. One is the fact that as teachers, we often have units we're trying to like cover and get through. And I mean, I have felt I've everything I talk about in the book that was an obstacle revision I've fostered in kids and like right. and cultivated often um, inadvert obviously inadvertently I didn't mean to I had some behaviors uh, I call it in the book I call it mining the tensions of my own teaching where I realized I was doing things I mean some things we can't prevent like we can't give months to work on a draft or we often don't I mean we could and I often let kids now I let kids percolate and have more choice than I used to but sometimes in all for good reasons we do um, create atmospheres that make it tough to revise or do make the piece more about us than giving kids ownership. One of the things you were just talking about, that feeling of um, it's sort of a faith, you were talking about sort of this faith that like this, I'll be able to use this idea somewhere, even if I can't use it now, or I can come back to right. it. One of the stances I talk about is the stance called optimism. And it doesn't mean that everything you write, you think is there's rainbows flying out of your pen. Uh, but it means that you're paying attention to the lines and the, the maybe things you collect in your notebook that give you some positive energy or you feel that they have potential and that collecting those things is a huge part, I think, of keeping kids and giving kids tons of choice as much as we can. Those are some of the things that help um, foster that sense of optimism. Like, okay, maybe I do have to write a persuasive piece and that's not my favorite, but I've got this other idea and I collect, collect things in our notes. Um, we do use a workshop model. And I think all those things help even with the constraints of school. Right. Absolutely. So you mentioned optimism being one of the six stances. The other five are metacognition, perspective taking, flexible thinking, transfer and risk taking. And um, you write in the book about how you decided to call them stances rather than skills, uh, because it's more about identifying something students can adopt right, versus something that they maybe acquire. <laughs> and, uh, and then you also share revision as you came to define it was about what was happening in the mindset of the writer during the writing process, right? So it's kind of about these beliefs and feelings and stances that we want our students to take toward their writing versus that there's any particular, okay, you need this skill and that skill. And I think to me, a lot of that speaks to just the endless range of what writing can be, right? And even within these individual stances, which we're going to talk a little bit more about, they'll look very different from student to student. And as you say, even a professional writer wouldn't necessarily be holding every single one of these stances all the time at the same time, right? No. Um, it's about kind of this process as you go through and think about your writing and who you're writing to. How did you, I mean, it was this kind of a newer idea that you came about maybe when you were going through either the research or the fellowship program and started to think about this as stances and what stances meant and why you felt like that was more appropriate? Exactly. Well, I've been teaching for 25 plus years. And a lot of that I've been a writing teacher in grades five, six, seven, eight, and even some, like I said, in a little bit in high school. And um, I taught revision as, as the way I'd kind of been taught it myself, that it was like a step in the writing process. And you draft, 
you create a first draft and you revise. And what I was noticing when I was really looking at my students, um, and I would teach kids many lessons and I still do all those things. And anyone, the book isn't going to upend all of writing workshop. But what I realized was that I had kids who knew the, a lot of craft moves, but it was really the mindset that they were bringing that was making them, that was making them willing, even enthusiastic to revise, that was making them able to identify lines and build off them, um, to be open to new approaches, see the perspective, the perspectives of potential readers. And, and then there were kids that uh, weren't able to do that. So what I realized, what I was looking at, I had, to, like most of the world, I had read you know, like Carol Dweck's mindset and had done some work on like habits of mind. And I never really blended those much with my writing workshop. And when I was looking at the kids in front of me during this research, I was realizing they're exhibiting a lot of those mm. mindset stands. Well, the habits of mind is what I was basing a lot of it from. Right. And then in some other work, I had seen this, this word stances. And I liked it because as you mentioned, it's like, I realized these aren't static things that kids either have or don't have. I mean, some kids naturally came to writing more with more optimism or more able to be a risk taker. Um, but it was something that as I was able to kind of shine a light on it and talk about it with kids, we were able to say, okay, well, we can all take a little bit more of a risk. And how would we do that? How would writing be a risk? What might you be able to take? And what I realized was that, and I also another, so there were a few big epiphanies when I was writing. Another one for me was I always thought like, as I mentioned, drafting comes first and then you revise. But what I realized with me and talking with kids is we're continually revising like as we go. You and I, even right now, we're mm -hmm. just the moment before you, a word comes out, you're kind of thinking of a different word you want to use that really captures what you say. Or you say something, you kind of go, well, actually, um, I think it was more like this. And we do that on the page all the time. We're sometimes revising just a moment before words hit the page. We sometimes think the next day. We don't have to wait until we're done with a draft to begin revising. And so that was a, you don't wait till quote unquote the end. And so one of the big uh, things I have kids do is kind of really look over their work more frequently and in shorter bursts. And the last thing is I used to have kids do another big change was I had kids do, they finished drafts, they revised them based on my comments and then and peers comments. And that, there's nothing wrong with that. But what I realized is that really kids need a process present, not a process history. Like for most kids, when they're done with a piece of writing, they're done, <laughs> they, right. especially in middle school kids. It's like a post-mortem when you ask them to look it over. They're just like, it's dead. Uh, not always, but I found that when I ask kids to reflect on their process during mm -hmm. drafting and not waiting until the final draft is over and done with, that really made them, one, realize that revision is something you do continually. And they were making a lot more thoughtful comments and they're really revising their pieces authentically. Adopted that idea of a process present, uh, like being present. Uh, versus a process history, which is over and done with. Okay. Right. And the history also, you can see how it wouldn't be the most motivating and likely pretty frustrating if you really do engage in it and you realize, oh, I would have done that differently, but now I now it's already done. I can't change it, um, at least for the purposes of this assignment right. versus, oh, well, I've, I have a second draft. So now I realize, oh, yeah, I want to tweak that or I want to do this a little differently. There is all the more motivation for the students to really want to do that because now they're learning, okay, my work can always be better. It can always be a little different. And yeah, the stances really this thinking about what they, what do I, what am I trying to do here? I mean, who, who am I trying to reach? What do I want them to feel? What do I want them to think and know? And there's just all those factors that are present in writing that aren't necessarily the same questions that you're asking across all different subject matter. Um, so as far as students having the ability to 
define their own goals and objectives. And one of the things that's often said about writing is that becoming a better writer helps us to become a better thinker because you're having to see your thoughts, read them back, think about how you can express them better. What am I missing? And I think metacognition is one of the best examples of that, right? And that's um, one of the stances here. And one of the things you mentioned is the importance of modeling that. And you know, I wonder, how do you model metacognition? Most of the time when I'm having kids write, I want them in the flow of writing. You want them to dive in and get excited. And that I do that. You do a lot of us as writing teachers do that through like pre-writing and quick writes and all kinds of ways. We just get kids to get words on the page or you know, get words, type typing as quickly as you can, kind of outrun your thinking. But then like, instead of waiting until the end of the draft, like I said, I want kids to be metacognitive in these short bursts. And um it basically, what I realized is when I ask kids, like maybe midway through a draft, hey, what what moves are you making um, as a writer? They often were making very sophisticated moves and they were completely unaware of them mm-hmm. or they weren't necessarily aware of every, of all the things that maybe I could see or that even their peers could see. Like a lot of times we can identify things in someone else's writing that we don't always see in our own. And uh, so one is I was trying to make it, I do try to with metacognition, try to make them a little more aware of what are you doing as a writer? What moves are you doing? And then why are you doing them? And simply asking those questions and getting kids to like look back at their own writing was really powerful. Um, One of the ways that I do that. And so like, for example, like just asking to think sometimes like what feels, what lines really um, feel like you're hitting them right? What sounds a little off to you? Mm -hmm. Um, Where is it energized? Where is it falling flat? What lines might be intriguing or confusing for readers? Those are just some questions that you might ask when you're being metacognitive. One of the best ways that I model it is I just like, I put up a draft of my writing, but I try to do it before it's like some polished piece. I try right. to pick a piece. I'm really writing with kids that, um, you know, something similar to what they're doing, where I'm really modeling the fact that one, I don't know exactly where this piece is going. I have something that I like, um, but I'll kind of uh, maybe project it on a document camera. I'll read it uh, to them maybe once, and then I'll read it again. And maybe and I do this sometimes with screencasting too, but I like doing it in real time where I can say, here's a line I really love. Like I'm loving how I wrote this. I wrote a poem to my daughters last year. Uh, one, one's in college and I was saying to the kids, here's why I wrote this. I'm writing this, trying to talk about like, why did I choose this piece? I wrote it because right. I was trying to capture a memory because my daughter's away and I miss her. And then I, so I would talk about like where the idea came from, but also like lines I'm loving, parts that are, that I'm not feeling real confident. And also like at the end, you guys, I feel like, it just kind of falls off. I'm not sure what to do here. And uh, in this title, like it just, it doesn't really match the feeling. And so talking, modeling, um, one, that I'm also a writer, two, that it's not um, simple. And three, I'm thinking, what am I going to do next? As I'm writing, kind of underscores that idea that like, of course, we're going to change things as we go. That's what writers do. Um, And I might not know exactly where this piece is headed. So I'm sharing with them things I'm loving, questions I'm having, and, uh, and places that might need changing. And I'm hoping that's kind of prompting them. Um, and it, it, this really, do, it really does work. I would say modeling throughout the whole book is the thing that I use the most. Um, right. And yeah, it helps kids to envision doing the same thing with their own pieces, which I ask them to do. Right. And of course, these stances all kind of fit together in various different ways. And one that you mentioned earlier being optimism and um, one of the beliefs that's stated in the book around optimism is that students should choose what to write and revise. And I see one, of course, that connects a lot to their metacognition and they're thinking about what they're writing and where it's going and also into 
the perspective taking piece about who is this writing for right and I need to first understand who am I trying to write for before I can then put myself in their shoes think about how they'll respond to it um it sort of makes me think that there, there's often that uh, kind of trope write what you know and uh I, I often or I sort of think it's more like write for who you know right <laughs> and it's the content sure right kind of understand how to write something for a particular audience you have to know that audience and that might be the most important thing um and then it kind of leads into what have you learned about feedback so you've referenced feedback already and but I feel like a lot part of the metacognition and I even talked about your example of okay I hit this point and I'm not sure how this ends or where does it go next that's part of the opportunity for the students as they're going through that process to say this is what I want to ask for feedback on right maybe my audience is eighth grade girls because I'm an eighth grade girl my audience is not my teacher so even though I want my teacher to be able to recognize where there is potential in this piece and some of the moves I'm making ultimately the piece is not for him so if he decides it's not his favorite piece of writing ever that I might be okay with that because that's not my audience however um I do want my peers to give me a little feedback on this or my teacher and but how much can that empower the feedback process we've talked about that on this podcast before with administrator to teacher feedback and saying okay one of the best ways to kind of improve that is to have them ask for the feedback that they want and that would be helpful to them versus just showing up giving them one-sided feedback i can't do anything with this this isn't relevant to what i'm doing right now everybody feels stifled now I'm even more resistant to the revision process, right? right and you're also thinking, well, how did you not get this? That piece wasn't about that at all. But you're talking about really two, you're kind of mentioning two stances. One is optimism, right? So this idea of kids have to be excited about the writing. Um, they have to build off of, I mean, to me, optimism, like I said, isn't loving everything you write, but it's noticing the, either the ideas you have, it could be a single line in something you wrote, like a quick write. It's basically seeing something you might, that can help you propel into the hard work of revision. It's noticing the strengths uh, that you have versus like focusing on the shortcomings. It's right. probably the, one of the hardest stances. And uh, and really we say write for, you have to write for you. Like for me, if I come up with, I try to give kids choice as much as I can. When I have to choose for kids because of standards I have to address or certain genres I have to teach, I try to make it as real as I can. Mm -hmm. So if we're writing book reviews, you know, we're writing, they're not just going to sit on a wall. They're not just going to me because if it's just to me, it's not real. As much as we can make it authentic, we started posting our book reviews in the hallways. And then one of my students years ago said, what if we like put these in the like library where kids are actually signing up books? And I thought, duh, of course we should do that. And then we started putting them into library books, like making them like bookmarks. And then they made the library made a big display of them. And when my students saw all these other students in the middle school, checking out their book reviews in order to sign out books for summer reading. They started creating posters. It just became, it was really motivating and it built optimism, but it also made them want to edit it suddenly right. to make it clear. They, so they were really writing for themselves. Uh, they, as much as you can, they need to write for themselves. But when they realize that they have a real audience, that's going to make them more excited about it. Um, and like you said, a lot of times, well, kids do write for, teachers because one, sometimes they've never been told they have another audience. So they're right. invited to have another audience. Two, they know that we grade it. So if we need to, if we can try to, um, we can't all devalue grades, but if we can try to say like, pleasing me is not the goal of this piece. 
Um, and if they can, <clears throat> when we're talking about perspective taking, we want kids to connect with a real audience um, and think of who might this piece be for. When my kids did book reviews, they were like, all right, this could be for a fifth. We had, our middle school is five through eight. So mm -hmm. they were thinking about books that might appeal to their classmates. Um, we do civic action projects where kids sometimes write to senators, write letters, or address local issues. So they might write to like our town council. <clears throat> so they really think about, all right, well, if I stepped into my reader's shoes, what information would they need for this to make sense? What's redundant? Like I've, I've had kids write to, you know, uh, Senator Maggie Hassan, and they're writing this long, extensive piece that I'm like, she knows this. You're talking about women's rights. She's, you don't have to tell her all this. And that's hard because they think this is because they were writing for the, they were thinking they were sort of writing a PowerPoint presentation for their class. Right. And then they have to think, all right, well, wait a second. This is different. What I would need for this it's, it's um, so that's a huge skill because those are writers thinking like readers. Um, they have to predict what their audience would need. But I do think in order to even take perspective, you have to one, care about it deeply. You have to own it. And then, um, and there has to be a real audience, um, it has to be authentic or why, why otherwise it's just an exercise. So right. all those things are true. Yeah. And that ownership is such a key concept in this where it's okay. I know that I have maybe the choice and autonomy over what I'm writing, who I'm writing for, what I want it to be about, but I need to be able to own that, to articulate that, to lay that out up front and make a case for it. Okay. Here's who I'm writing for. Here's what I want it to be about. And Here's, let me, let me demonstrate to you how I am doing that effectively versus after the fact saying, well, it didn't, you thought it wasn't a good piece, but that's because it wasn't really for you kind of thing. And it allows them to really build on that and think about that with intentionality. And yes, consider that this is not a, I mean, it is a school assignment, but writing is not, it's not about what's the, what are the objectives of the assignment as much as it is, okay, what is a piece of writing? It's something that we want somebody to read and who is that somebody and so on. And you've also mentioned one of the other beliefs about optimism, um, students should learn to build from their strengths, right? And so much of this optimism to me is about their belief that they can do it. They can write something good, that there, it, there are good things in this first draft, or there is promise here for where I can get to. And um, the building from the strength thing stands out. We've kind of talked about this in a couple of different ways on this show before about how those challenges, again, among uh, the various competing goals within the school day, right? And how so frequently we may have to spend more of our time on the things that are our relative weaknesses because we need to get them up to, uh, up to standard. Um, and the areas where we're strong, we're, we're doing fine over there. So we're not spending as much time on that, but those may be the areas where they're getting the most enjoyment, <laughs> where we may have the most long-term um, opportunity and potential beyond our school days. And ultimately, if you think about any writer, there's no writer that is good at every single different type and style of writing or they're funny and they're also a great investigative journalist and they also write great uh, young adult literature or what they choose what they think they are good at and they keep trying to get better and better and better at that and um, and I think that's a really empowering thing for students um, to lead to this optimism to say one hey you may not recognize it but I see it you're really good at this thing and this thing and 
let's keep trying to make that even better and better because that can be what's unique about you. That can be what makes you stand out. Um, why do you, why is that belief such an important part of this to you? Um, and how does it you know potentially contrast with the demands that frequently might be on students. When you were talking, Ross, it, it, it you know occurred to me, and I write about this in the book, is how fragile optimism is. Like for adult writers, um, it's tricky. Sometimes we compare our work with, and kids do this all the time, they compare their writing with the authors they love, and they're like, I should just hang it up. Like, what's the point? Um, and, but it, that sentiment is so common in like published authors, people that we love and revere. And they think the same thing, that whole like imposter syndrome or how I can't possibly do this. So we really have to, so I really think we've got to nurture the optimism that we see in kids. Like, and so I, of course we have to sometimes give kids some feedback about things they might want to change and questions about things that aren't clear, but I just, I'm trying really hard. And I think teachers would um, be wise to try really hard to like, gradually roll out those other things. I mean, if we start with like, I sometimes call it kudos only feedback, whether I'm giving it as a teacher or I do peer to peer, kudos only. And first I just talk about like, why would I just kind of say like, why would we want to do this? Like, what's the point of this? And the point is because one, we may not recognize what we're doing well. And once we know what we're doing well and we can name it, then we can do it again. And also most of all, it makes us want to like, what's the point of getting feedback if you want to just drop the piece and hang it up? It doesn't do anything. Getting the best feedback in the world doesn't work if we don't want to look at the piece again because we're um, we're feeling downcast about it. So so I try to dedicate some conferences to just strengths. So what's working and avoid the buts. I avoid kind of going, this was, your lead was great. This part is um, really unclear. And now it's very hard to do that as a teacher. And I know that you were talking about the constraints. They're very real. Like when I talked about mining the tensions in my teaching, I would often like think, all right, I got one shot and unconsciously or subconsciously think I've got one shot at this kid's piece. I've got a comment on everything. So my Google doc comments were like these crazy, like overwhelming amounts of like Hydra heads. Right. Do one comment and six more pop up. Um, And kids were sort of looking dazed when they'd get their feedback. And really what I noticed is it didn't work. Conferences with kids are not feedback delivery systems. I can comment on everything I think they could change. It doesn't matter all if they don't, they're not motivated to change it. And they're not, and the most common sentiment I hear from teachers is I get the kids comments and they don't change anything. Mm -hmm. It's so frustrating. Well, that's to me, I've gotten a lot, I've gotten away from a lot of it. I try to really start with sort of some positives, um, dedicate conferences to those gradually, like weave in questions. Um, Barry Lane does something called question circles, um, where kids just ask each other questions about things they're curious about or confused about. And then eventually we do suggestions and I frame them as what ifs. Like it's a, it's the same thing to say, what, what if you tried a new title for this piece as saying, you really need to change the title of this. Um, it's the same idea and, and it's a, com- it's received completely differently. So learning how to give um, suggestions in a non-threatening way, but a really thoughtful way mm-hmm. um, is something. So one thing I noticed is I used to just expect kids to be able to like give feedback and it's a really, really sophisticated skill to do it well. And so I really consciously teach them um, how to give feedback before I just expect it. Um, so those are some things I do to try to help them build optimism and build a genuine connection with readers. So not just anticipate what a reader might think, like an like Stephen King talks about an ideal right. reader that we envision, but also the real people that you're getting feedback from. Um, we have to be open to what they have to say. And then also we have to decide which of their comments we're going to 
take and which we're going to let go. We don't have to accept everything they say, right. but if you don't accept anything, um, what was the point and were we open-minded enough? So, so there's um, a lot of pieces there. I think the biggest thing I'll also just say is you were mentioning about giving kids optimism for them to see things are doing well. I used to make it my mission to like, um, and I still do, to try to help kids to see the hidden gems in their writing. Uh, Catherine Bomer calls them hidden gems. I still do that. But really when I've seen my classroom fundamentally changes when, and this is why I started doing more metacognition, when kids start to see what's great about their writing, when they can notice and name in their own pieces um, what's going well. And it, sometimes it does start with me having to notice and name them because I'll say, wow, this, you're writing, I just said to a kid the other day, I'm like, do you notice how your sentence structure is a lot like Jason Reynolds? We just read Long Way Down. And um, because when I said what's going well, she couldn't identify one thing. And right. I was like, look at this, how you're using these fragments. Do you notice that? And then um, it's funny. I saw her saying that to another student in a conference. She's like, you're using fragments really well, these one word sentences. And uh, if you can't, if you can't name it, then it's really hard to do it again. <laughs> right. So if you can notice it, if you can name it and then say why it works. Um, those are things that I ask kids to do. It's not just like, I love your piece. It's noticing, it's naming, and it's talking about why that, whatever that is, that craft move, that, why that works. Right. And it, of course, as these all connect leads to that transfer piece where it's, if I'm actually paying attention to what my peers are doing and really calling out the things I like, then I might try to adopt some of those ideas for myself. Right. But I can't do that unless I'm really engaging in that process and um, thinking about what's useful to them, right? giving that meaningful feedback, because while the first couple of, I love this is great comments might feel good, eventually it's like, you're not even really reading, right? You're just trying to check this off the list and say that you said something, but at the same time, overloading me with a bunch of things that I could change, but I don't want to change or, um, or not exactly explaining why that might make the piece better than I'm just feeling like I'm not really appreciating the feedback process, right? Um, but uh, we'd see how obviously those things would connect and now they're learning from one another and they're also understanding that um, because there's so many different styles of writing and topics and subjects it introduces a what can be a very healthy learning environment where students are don't have to worry about comparing themselves to one another and saying who's the best writer in the class it could i could be the best at poetry and he's the best at writing about baseball and she's the best at um being funny right and we all have our things because we're just kind of learning what our strengths are and what our peers are appreciating about our writing yeah. And you mentioned the transfer stance. Like that was one that, like you said, that I definitely have kids that would sort of name, you know, the mentor in our class, like Alyssa is so good at first. They don't know what to, I had a, a student, Jack, I talk about in the book. They would say, this is good at that two voices thing she does. I was like, Jack, what do you mean? The two voices thing? He's like, well, she talks about like the two voices in her head, like those two voices tell you should go on the roller coaster and like, oh my God, you probably shouldn't, you're going to die. And she does that. And I was like, well, and then eventually Jack came to know that's like monologue or mm -hmm. you can call it using thoughts. Um, and when they can, again, when you, so transfers, when you're kind of become conscious of the writing skills, you see around you, the craft moves, and it's really powerful. It's amazing. Actually, when you see your class, the class, uh, mates, like recognizing who's really great at different things, like you were saying, wow. Um, and then when they transfer is when you kind of consciously recycle those things or you reuse them in a new piece. Um, and it might be a piece, like, like I mentioned earlier, we see, we read a piece by Jason Reynolds and you think, I want to try that. 
um, you have to be aware of what that is. And then you kind of go like kids were noticing, like we were reading some, a lot of kids were reading Long Way Down by Jason Reynolds and they're noticing his use of like, well, just use of free verse poetry, but use of a lot of white space. And they're like, he like puts one, his, it's a stanza, but they say his paragraph is like one word. And I'm like, what does that do for like, why might he do that? Why might he have all these like one word sentences and punchy sentences? And, uh, and so it's noticing it and it's thinking why you'd want to use it. And then when that's pretty sophisticated, but when kids start to, um, in the book, I talk about a lot of ways we can use short little ways to help kids transfer what they know. They often know a lot more than they, than they recognize. Um, and so just taking these brief moments to think, what have you learned in the past and what worked for you? And what was the, one of the things that I did that was really powerful was just asking kids at the end of the year to, um, identify what helped them the most. It was often surprising what they said. And then we off, and then we created revision videos to show my students the following year. They would write these, they would do these little how-to videos, like how to write a great title. Um, why does it help to, um, you know, confer with your friends and how to pick a good conference partner, a conferring partner. So those are the kinds of things kids, by sort of teaching someone else, you certainly learn, um, you recognize what really worked for you and you um, can identify how to do it um, in the future. So there's another one that to me is like, you really need to model this and that's flexible thinking, right? That's getting the students to, to be open to new ideas and approaches and something that, um, again, I don't see how students are going to do that without their teacher first validating that the teacher has the same mindset. Um, and if they're feeling as though there's rigidity from the instructor, they're going to say, well, why should I be flexible? Right? Um, so how do you go about modeling that one? Sure. So um, one is, is, I think in the book, I talk about it as like sharing without the sham. I used to sometimes write pieces. I I mean, I still, it's hard as a teacher, you have very little time, but I would write, I wrote a piece. I loved it. It was about Halloween. Actually, it's interesting because it's almost Halloween. And it was a great story for my youth. And I I had all my drafts and I would, and I had my final draft and all the things I changed about it. And I would kind of wheel it out every October, right around when we were doing narratives. And, um, but I would sort of pretend like, I had already, I'd shown the first draft and asked for their feedback and they'd give it to me. And then I'd say, oh, look what I did. Like a cooking show host will pull out like a perfect um, meal that just came out from underneath uh, underneath the cabinets. And it, it felt disingenuous because like one of the things I need to do is really, I got to try a piece that is um, a little vulnerable about, and then I have to show them how I'm actually, I actually am open to changing some things. Um, maybe I can model flexible thinking by taking some of their feedback, but also saying like, I'm going to try this because I think it will help. I'm not going to try. I can also show them that I own the piece. Like I don't have to accept everything. Right. Some, some of their suggestions might, or questions might take me down a road. I actually don't want to go on, but I can model how I'm open to some of those um, by what I'm working on with a real piece. Um, I show kids how I show examples also by modeling what previous students have done, like students who wrote um, we were did like biography studies we've done where kids pick a, like we, we did a, um, historical, we were doing some social studies and language arts where kids, um, searched a historical figure from the 20th century, someone important, and then they would, you know, why they were important, but they would dig into it and they'd write like sort of a biography study. But the writing really changed when we said like, you don't have to write as if like a third person narrator, like what if you took on a different point of view? Right. And so just get opening up to different um, uh, narrators that could tell the story of, say, Pele. And so some kids were like, I'm going to write it from a teammate's perspective. I'm going to write it from his first coach. 
I'm going to write it as Pele when at the end of his life. Modeling how students have done that in the past. Maybe, maybe mm -hmm. they tried different points of view. Um, how changing a narrative, we were just doing narratives, but changing a narrative from like first person, which is how we usually write narratives, right? I did this, then I did this, uh, um, to second person where you're on the ski slope. It's your first time on a blue you think you're going to die. You know, what that does to a piece, and but showing them, uh, making a third person, writing about yourself in the third person, um, putting something in present versus past tense. So one is just opening up when you do flexible things. Sometimes kids don't know what the options are. So just kind of talking with them and kind of laying out the options through peer work, through my work. And then, and then just, I think the biggest thing I do besides modeling my own openness is encouraging them to just play. So mm -hmm. some of the things that we do in our class are really playful and not, I, I mean, as much as obviously we all have deadlines and sometimes they have to finish pieces, but encouraging them just to hold off on the I'm done for a little while. We do something called wreck a draft where we're like, what's the worst? We were just doing titles the other day, but like, what's the worst title you could come up with for this piece? Let's brainstorm the worst possible titles. Yeah. And by brainstorming the worst titles, like the time I broke my arm, they start to realize well, what makes a title great. The time I broke my mm -hmm. arm is pretty terrible, as someone said, because it gives it away. And like, it's a description. It's not really a hook or right. intriguing. And um, my camp, it's like nothing terrible as a first draft, but they're like, it doesn't pull me in. So that by thinking about wrecking the draft, it's kind of playful, making something really terrible. But then you're also envisioning, well, the flip side is, well, how would I make it um, really engaging, really um, powerful, make readers want to read on. And so we've done that with different things. And that's just one, sometimes we play by doing memes or writing um, social media posts that are just sort of, they wouldn't think of as writing, but it, it really encourages them to hopefully um, be flexible with pieces that feel more like school writing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So to, and to briefly touch on the last stance. So once we kind of know what we think our strengths are, once we're open to new ideas, now how we grow, um, and try something new to see what we can do is, is risk-taking. And how do we, how do you make that risk-taking inviting to students who, again, often may feel as though they're disincentivized to take too many risks because either they are used to only having one shot at something and you get a grade and if it doesn't work, then uh, I should have just taken the safe route or, um, or just may otherwise feel self-conscious or uncertain or of course, a major part of the risk is you have to have risk tolerance. You have to be okay with the fact that sometimes a risk won't pay off. And that's a, that's also a data point. So there's a lot of ways, right? And none of these questions are easy. So right, risk for one, risk-taking is one of the last stances I'd, I'd unveil to kids because it's, it is tricky and you wouldn't want to um, ask kids to take a risk before they're ready, before there's a relationship building, before they feel comfortable with one another. Um, when I do ask kids to take a risk with writing, um, I'll, or any, in any way, um, I'll invite them to take a risk, but it's on their terms, right? So it's a, it's challenged by choice. Like, well, and so one way we do it is we're sort of, and I do it maybe later this fall, sort of say, hey, we've typically done like a piece of writing where maybe I'll say, Hey guys, we're, you're going to write a piece and the purpose is just to share something significant about you. It doesn't have to be a memoir. It could be any genre you want. And I'll again model different genres, how a piece of poetry might, uh, some kids have written their own obituary, uh, kids have done graphic novels about their lives um, or about a piece of their life. And I'll say like, all right, so what are some, this is the assignment. We just want, we want to know some about you um, that we didn't know before that's kind of significant to you. But what are ways this could be a risk? And maybe they, we brainstorm. It could be a risk trying a brand new genre you haven't tried. It could be a risk talking about something that's kind of personal. Um, right. 
it could be a risk um, revising it because we're going to ask you to change something. Um, and so it, so one laying out what the risks would be and the range of them and just saying, Hey, you know, what if you challenge yourself to try one of these, what might you try? And it's amazing what kids will try um, when they're not like, when they're not compelled or required to do it. Um, and, uh, and we just want the idea of risk is that they're just stretching themselves. So for some kids, like trying a new title, uh, one of my biggest epiphanies in this is like, we ask kids to do a lot. And when we really do it ourselves, like one of the biggest reasons I write with kids as much as I can and really do the things I ask them to do is I am always amazed by how hard the things I'm asking them to do really are. Right. So changing a couple of things might seem small to a teacher, but I have to continually remind myself for that kid, that could have been huge. So like be like, I liked my camp. <laughs> I wanted that title. Um, or like endings, we were just talking about yeah. endings. And as you said, you're not always sure you can even pull it off. And so the other thing I do is I just um, kind of try to um, highlight the benefits of risk-taking and also talk about, obviously you want to be safe about the kinds of risks you ask kids to do. There's plenty of risks we don't want to invite kids to take, like um, putting themselves too much out there with something that's overly personal, like oversharing. That's not the kind of risk I'm talking about. I'm talking about things like maybe being open to a new ending or like I said, a new genre or possibly something that matters to you. That risk-taking is really important, but it's one that I would gradually invite, invite kids to take. Yeah. And it can still be, you can still enjoy doing it, even if it doesn't turn out to be your best. Right. And uh, I mean, you, could, you see that with professional artists of different types, whether they're a writer, or filmmaker, or musician, or so on, where they try something that's completely out of the norm for them. And you're thinking, well, why, why do they do that? They're good at this other thing, but they wanted to try something new. They wanted to stretch themselves. And, um, they may still think it was good or they may have said, well, sure, it wasn't as good as my other. I enjoyed doing something new and trying it and yeah. I learned something in the process. And there was something about it that worked that I can take to my take to my other um, to my other writing or my other. That's work. exactly it, Ross. That's what I was thinking, like that idea of like highlighting why would anyone take a risk? Right. And right. kids inherently get this when you talk about like comfort zones versus growth zones versus panic zones. And we do these concentric circles, like a comfort zone is where it's nice. We sort of, it's like kicking back on the couch, but we're probably not going to grow very much. Um, whether it's in sports or whether it's in writing you, if you never try a new pitch, you were a baseball pitcher, but you throw the same pitch every time. It's like, uh, when we don't really work out, you're not going to get a lot stronger. The growth zone, uh, we sort of show like that's and kids get this, like that, that there's a space where like you have to push yourself a little bit to try something a little bit new, but you don't want it to be too scary. For some kids, risk is like sharing their piece with anyone, right? So some kids, that's no risk at all. And we talk about how risk is personal. Like some kids will share their piece. We have these poetry nights and kids will share, some kids will share with everyone. And mm -hmm. other kids are like, for me to share a six word story with this audience is petrifying. So we talk about those. How do you stretch your growth zone by by trying some new things. So it grows a little bit. These aren't static things like what's in our panic, what's in our growth zone, what's in our panic zone today might be in our growth zone tomorrow right. or next, next month. And so talking about how you grow by taking healthy risks. And uh, that was huge. Like kids were really reflected from really from when I worked with third and fourth and fifth graders up through eighth graders, they get it. This idea of um, I need to push myself a little bit and they feel excited when they've taken a little bit of a risk, um, whether it's sharing something, as long as it, we create these safe conditions. 
Absolutely. So uh, one question that we often like to wrap up with here on the show is uh, if a reader can only check out one part of the book, where would you direct them? All right. I mean, that's a tough one. Wow. You threw me a hard one. Um, I guess I'd say this. You think about the kids that you work with. So think about the ages. I'm assuming someone reading this is probably, or someone hearing this is probably um, a writing teacher for some maybe middle level up through, you'd really be up through high school. But think about which of those stances, metacognition, optimism, perspective taking, flexible thinking, transfer risk taking, at different ages, there are different challenges for kids. So for like, I work with eighth graders now. Oh my Lord, optimism is tough, right? They think right. they're so self-conscious. When I was in fifth grade, pretty kids are pretty excited to share just about everything they have. Um, so for eighth graders, optimism and risk-taking are real challenging. How do you get kids to like trust their own voice a little bit? And so those are ones I would focus on with, that I do focus on with eighth grade. Um, when I was teaching younger grades, sometimes there's some rigidity, some maybe flexible thinking, um, and, but they're really, honestly, you could start with any of them. They dove, they not only dovetail, but they overlap so much. Like mm -hmm. when you're being metacognitive, thinking about your writing, you're thinking about what you like and that's optimism. You might be thinking about what would resonate with readers. That's perspective taken and connection. So I think if you can only read one chapter and you couldn't decide metacognition is not a bad place to begin to. Excellent. Well, that's a great answer. And the uh, listeners, I can say, <laughs> and I can I can tell you for sure that we've, uh, I don't know, we've scratched the surface. Maybe we've mentioned um, five to 10% of the ideas in this book, but there's a lot more there. Each of these various stances um, goes very in depth with beliefs associated with them and practices and different ways to bring them to the classroom. So if you're teaching writing um, or you're interested in writing, definitely check out this book. Um, Chris, we're going to put down in the show notes for our listeners a link to where they can find the book from Heinemann. Um, is there anything else that you're working on or any other uh, places where you'd like our listeners to check out? No, I think that that's great. Uh, you can get the book through Heinemann, through Amazon. Um, I'm working a lot in my own district doing some uh, teacher research, but um, but yeah, please check out the book. It's a, it's a very practical book. I think teachers will find a lot of um, things they can take out and use that week with their students. So. Excellent. Awesome. So we, uh, we will put the information down there for the writer's mindset. So make sure to check that out, listeners. Please do subscribe to the Authority Podcast for more in-depth author interviews with folks just like Chris. And do visit our bpodcast.network website to learn about all of our other shows. Chris, thanks again for being on the show. Thanks, Ross. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.